0: Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. I want to talk about patchwork as an empirical model a little bit, but also a little bit as a normative model. Because there's there's this idea that capitalism is increasingly collapsing the fact value distinction. And I think I, I I tend to think that that's true. And I think what that means is that, you know, that which is empirically true uh, increasingly looks to be normatively true also. Or if you're searching for a true model, you should be searching for models that are at once empirically well calibrated with reality and also one should be looking for normative or ethical uh, consistency Uh, and you can kind of find the true model of in any in any particular situation by kind of triangulating along the empirical and the normative so that's kind of how i think about patchwork i've been thinking about it in both of these dimensions and that has allowed me to converge on a certain vision of what i think patchwork involves or entails and I've been writing a lot about that over the past couple months or so. And so what I'm going to do in this talk specifically though, is not just rehash some ideas that I've been thinking about and writing about and speaking about the past couple months, but I'm going to try to break a little bit of ground, at least in my own, uh, you know, weird head at, at the very least in how these different, some of these different ideas of mine connect or, or can be integrated. And so, uh, in particular, I've written, I wrote a series of blog posts a few months ago on the, a certain concept of what I call reality forking. And forking is a term that comes from the world of software engineering. And so I that's going to be one component of, of the talk. You'll see, it, it's very obvious how how that, that connects to the idea of patchwork. And I'm also going to talk about this kind of vision for a communist patch that a lot of us have been interested in. And I've been talking with a lot of people about this idea of the communist patch and soliciting, you know, different people's impressions on it. And I also have written a few blog posts recently talking, kind of sketching kind of hand-waving, if you will, at what a possibly communist patch might look like. And because, you know, a lot of people think to this day, patchwork has a very, it has a very kind of uh, right-wing connotation, I think to this day, uh, because people think of primarily, people think of Moldbug and Nick land when they think of patchwork. Um, but I think it's not at all obvious that patchwork necessarily has a right wing uh, flavor to it. I think um, we can easily imagine left wing uh, patches that would be as competitive and as um, successful as, you know, more authoritarian patches. And so that's kind of what I've really been thinking a lot about recently. And uh, even Nick Land himself told me that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to uh, think about and even build a communist patch, you know, that's all, that's all fair play. He's, he's much less uh, uh, bullish than I am on it, but uh, be that as it may. So those two ideas I'm going to discuss basically in turn, and then try to connect them in a few novel ways. I have a few kind of points or comments or extrapolations or connections between these, these two different ideas I've been working on that I've never really written down before or or quite articulated um, yet. So that's what I'm going to try to do here. So first of all I was going to start this by talking a little bit about how patchwork I think is already happening in a lot of ways but I literally deleted many of the bullet points because Dustin's presentation basically covered that even better than I possibly could so I'm not going to waste too much time talking about that there's a lot of empirical you know data right now that looks a lot like you know, fragmentation is the order of the day in, in an empirical sense. Um, there's a lot of exit dynamics and fragmentation dynamics that we're observing in in many domains. And, and yeah, Dustin articulated a lot of them. One thing I would say to kind of situate the talk though is it's worth noting that not everyone agrees with this. You know, there's still a lot of kind of integrative talk nowadays. There's a lot of discourse about the necessity of building larger and larger organizations. You see this especially, I think, when it, when people are talking about kind of global issues and major existential threats. So for instance, you know, often in the educated discourse around preventing nuclear threats, for instance, or AI, you know, things like, um, runaway kind of in, inhumane genetic testings, things like that. Um, and you could probably think of a few others, uh, climate change would be the obvious big one, right. Um, in, in a lot of these major global issues, the discourse around them, um, you know, the expert opinions tend to have a kind of integrative, um, centralized uh, tendency to them. I was actually just this morning, I happened to be listening to, uh, I listened to a shitload of podcasts. And I was listening to a podcast with uh, that, that Sam Harris did with uh, Yuval Harari, this guy who wrote the book um, uh, uh, Sapiens, right, uh, this mega global blockbuster of a book. Uh, and, you know, seemed like a nice guy. It seemed like a smart guy, of course, but all, everything he was saying was, was totally integrative. He was talking about, you know, how we need things like international organizations and more global international cooperation to solve all of these different problems. And, you know, and Sam Harris is just kind of nodding along happily. And that got me thinking actually, because if, even if you read people like Nick Bostrom and people who are kind of more hard nosed and, and analytical and interested in, you know things like intelligence explosion. there is you you find in a lot of educated opinion the opposite of of kind of a patchwork orientation. You find we need to cooperate at a global level. anyway, the reason I mention this is just to you know put it in context that the ideas we're interested, you know the ideas that we're all interested in and the empirical dynamics that we're pinpointing are not at all obvious to to everyone, even though you know I think when you really when you really look at all of the fragmentation dynamics, I think it's it's increasingly hard to believe any idea, any proposal having to do with like getting all of the nation states to cooperate on something. I just, you know, I just don't see it. For instance, you know, genetic engineering, you know, like China is 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 off to the races. I just don't see any way in which somehow the US and China are going to uh, negotiate some sort of like pause to that. Um, anyway. So that that's worth reflecting on. But the one of the reasons that I mentioned that is because. I kind of have a, a meta theory of precisely those discourses. And that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit later in, in, in my talk when I talk about the ethical implications, because I think a lot of that is basically lying. OK, like I think my, my one of my theses is that when people are talking about how we have to organize some larger structure to prevent some moral problem, nine times out of 10, that what they're actually doing is a kind of capitalist um Selling process, so like it, that, thats actually just a kind of cultural capitalism in which they're using, you know, they're pushing moral buttons to get a bunch of people to basically pay them. Um, I, I think that that's that's basically that is like a very modern persona. That's a modern mold, and that's precisely the type. That's one of many things that I think is being melted down in you know the acceleration of, of capitalism. And w- what's really happening is all that's really like feasible in so many domains, all you can see for miles when you look in every possible direction is fragmentation, alienation, atomization, exits of all different kinds on all different kinds of levels. And then you have people who are like, uh, we need to stop this. So give me your money and give me your votes like that. I think that's, a, I think it's basically an unethical posture. I think it's a dishonest, disingenuous posture. And it's ultimately about, um, you know, like accruing power to the people who uh, are promoting that usually like high status, Cultural elites in, you know, the cathedral or whatever you want to call it. So that's why I think there are real ethical implications. I think if you want to not be like a liar <laughs> and not be a a kind of cultural s- snake oil salesman, which I think a lot of these people are, patchwork is actually it's not only what's happening, but it's actually ethically uh, o- we're ethically obligated to hitch our wagons to to patchwork dynamics if only not to be a liar and a manipulator about the the you know the nature of of the the real issues that we are going to have to try to navigate somehow. So I'll talk a little bit more about that but I just want to kind of open up open up the talk with that reflection on kind of the current debate around around these issues. So okay, so the one dimension of patchwork dynamics or exit dynamics that we're observing I think empirically right now that we're already in the midst of that dustin didn't talk about so much or if he did maybe someone talked about it maybe i missed it but didn't talk about as much as i would like to is is a kind of patchwork dynamics that's taking place on the so the social psychological level um so i've written a lot i think i've thought a lot about this and i've written some on it and and to really drive this point home i've had to kind of uh borrow a term from the world of software engineering so i'll make this really quick and simple basically um, when you're developing software and you have a bunch of people contributing to this like larger code base, you need some sort of system or infrastructure for how a bunch of people can edit the code at the same time, right? You need to keep that orderly, right? So there's this, there's this simple term, it's called forking. Um, and so you have this code base and if you want to make a change to the code base, you fork it. Right. And so in the, in, in a, in a standard case, you would might do what, what we call like a soft fork. Um, so it's like you, I, I'm butchering the the technical language a little bit if there are any like hardcore programmers in the room I'm aware that i'm I'm being a little bit um I'm, I'm I'm painting with a broad stroke but I'll get the point across I think effectively enough without being too nerdy about it um a soft fork means that you pull the code base off for your own purposes um, but it ultimately can can merge back in basically is the is the is the simple idea there um, but a hard fork is when you the code base off to edit it, and there's no turning back. There's no reintegrating your edits to the to the shared uh, you know master branch or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I use this this uh, kind of technical distinction between a soft fork and a, and a hard fork to think about what's actually going on with social psychological reality uh, and, and, and its distribution across you know Western societies today. Um, and the reason that I do this is because I think you need this kind of language to really drive home how radical, the social psychological problems are. Um, how rea- I, I really think that we underestimate how much reality itself is being fragmented um, in different subpopulations. Uh, I think we are talking about fundamental. we are now fundamentally entering into different worlds. And it's not at all clear to me that there's there's any road back to having some sort of shared world. And so I, I sketched this out in greater detail in the essay. And what I talk about is basically, in my view, the kind of traditional human society you can think of it as a kind of system of constant soft forking, right? So individuals go off on, you know, during the day or whatever, they go hunting, do whatever, you know, traditional societies do. And at the end of the night, you know, they integrate all of their experiences in a shared code base. So soft forks, but then it's merged back to the master branch around the campfire or whatever you want to call it, however you want to think about that. Um, But it's only now that for the first time ever, we have the technological conditions in which individuals can fork, The shared social code base, edit that code, and then never really integrate it back into the shared code base. And so, this is what I call kind of hard, you know, the hard forking of reality. I think that that is what we're living through right now. And I think that's why you see things like political polarization to a degree we've never seen before. That's why you see profound confusion and and kind of miscommunication, just just deep inabilities to even relate with each other across different groups, especially like the left right divide, for instance. But you also see it with things like, you know, think about someone like Alex Jones. Think about these like independent media platforms that are just on a vector towards outer space that it's hard to even it's hard to even relate it to um, anything like empirical that you can recognize. Um, You see more and more of these kinds of hard reality forks or or that's what I call them. Um, And yeah, so that's that's a kind of um, very serious, I think kind of exit dynamic or patchwork dynamic that's happening. And I think educated opinion today underestimates how extreme that is and and how much that's already taking place. It's not clear to me once you're on, once you're, once this is underway, it's not clear to me how like someone who is, you know, neck deep in the world of Alex Jones, and that is their sense of what reality is, how that person is ever going to be able to sync back up with, you know an educated, uh, person at Harvard university or something like that. You know, it's not just those people can't have dinner together that happened, you know, uh, several decades ago, probably, but, um, they can't even there's, there's just no actual technical, um, infrastructural pathway, uh, through which these two different worlds could be negotiated or, or made to converge into something shared. Um, and I think that, that the radicalism of that break is 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 a defining feature of our current technological moment. And that is a patchwork. That is an extraordinary patchwork dynamic. In other words, I think that patchwork is already here, uh, but it's especially strong in the socio-psychological uh, dimension. And that's very invisible. So people underestimate it. People often think of patchwork as a territorial phenomenon, and maybe one day it will. It will be, but I think primarily for now, it's it's socio psychological, and that should not be underestimated because you can go into fundamentally different worlds even in the same territory. That that's kind of what the digital plane uh, opens up to us. Okay, so that's that's one half uh, of of what I'm bringing to the table in, in this talk. Um, <clears throat> uh, there are a few, I think antecedent conditions for, for what it's worth to kind of explain like why i think this is happening now one is that there's been an extraordinary breakdown in the trust of uh, in trust towards all kind of traditional institutionalized centralized systems um you know if you look at the public opinion data for instance on how people view uh congress in the united states or how people view parliament or whatever uh just trust in elected leaders like you ask people how much do you trust so and so you look at the public opinion data since like the fifties and it's really, really um, on the decline on a consistent and pretty rapid decline. And and this is true. If you ask them about, what do you think about the mass media? What do you think about your politicians? What do you think about a whole bunch of mainstream traditional kind of institutions that were the, you know, bedrock of, of, of modernized societies? Um, people just don't take them seriously anymore at all. And I think that that is because, uh, because the, because of technological acceleration, what's happened is that there is unprecedented complexity. There's just too much information. There's so much information that these modern institutions, they're, they're really, really unwieldy. They're really unable to process the complexity uh, that, we, that we now are trying to navigate. And people are seeing very patently that, you know, parliament or, you know, the United States Congress or the traditional, you know, public education system, whatever it might be, that all mass media, for sure, that all of these systems are just patently invisibly not able to manage, they're not able to actually uh, uh, do or, or give what they're supposed to be giving with this explosion of information that they were not designed to be able to handle. So it's kind of like a bandwidth problem, really. But because of that, there's, People, people are dropping their attention away from, from these institutions, and they're looking outwards. They're looking elsewhere. They're looking for uh, other forms of reality because that that's ultimately what's at stake here. I think that these traditional institutions, they supplied the shared reality. It was, Even though people disagreed, they all referred back to these dominant institutions because even if you don't like those institutions – you know, in the 60s or whatever, in the 70s, even when people really didn't like those institutions like the hippies or whatever, everyone kind of recognized them as as existing as as powerful. So even opposing them, you kind of refer back to them. We're now post all of that, where people aren't people so mistrust them that they're not even referring back to them anymore. And they're taking their entire cues for what reality is from, you know, people like Alex Jones or people like Jordan Peterson or, or you name it. And you're going to see more and more fragmentation, more and more refinement of different types of realities for different types of for different subpopulations in an ever more refined way that aligns with their personalities and their preferences. And basically, you know, they're kind of like consumer preferences. People are going to get the realities that they that they most desire in a highly fragmented market. Anyway, so I, I think I've talked enough about that. That's kind of my idea of reality forking. And that's my kind of model or observation about a deep form of patchwork that I think is already underway in a way that people underestimate. Um, so, all right. So now I want to talk a little bit more about the ethics of, of patchwork, because I think the observations that I just prevent presented, they, they, they raise ethical questions. And so if I am right, that reality itself is already breaking up into, into multiple versions, multiple patches. Well, then that raises some interesting questions for us, not just in terms of like what we want to do, but in terms of what what should we do? I mean, what does it mean to what does it mean to seek the good life? And if this is, in fact, you know, the the context if this is, in fact, what's happening. And it seems to me that right now you're either going to be investing your efforts into uh, somehow creatively co-constituting a new reality or you're going to be just consuming someone else's reality. And a lot of us, I think, do a combination of this, like all the podcasts I listen to and all the YouTube videos I watch. You know, that's me outsourcing reality creation to, to other people to some degree. But then the reason I've gotten on YouTube and the reason I've gotten really into all these 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 platforms and, and investing myself, you know, more in, in creating my own sense of the world is because I don't just want to be a consumer of other people's realities. I want to be... I want to create a world that would, that sounds awesome. That would be the ideal. Right. Um, But the problem is that people are differently equipped to do, to, to either create or consume realities. And I think that this is a difficult and very fraught. This is a very politically fraught uh, problem. Um, And, you know, the left and the right will have debates about, you know, the blank slate versus, you know uh, you know, the heritability of traits and all of that. And I don't want to get into that now, but however you want to interpret it, it is an obvious fact that some people are better equipped to do things like create systems than other, than other people. Okay. And so that to me kind of just is the, is the ethical, political, um, uh, question space. Like, how do you do that ethically? And so I think the default mode right now is the one that I already described at the top of my talk with people who it's the moralist, it's the kind of traditional left-wing moralist posture, like here's a program for how we're going to protect a bunch of people. All it requires is for you to sign up and to give me your votes and to like come to my meetings and give me your money. And, and somehow we're going to, we're going to get all together and we're going to, we're going to take state power and we're going to like protect people or something like that. Um, I think that's increased, as I already said, I won't beat a, beat a dead horse, but I think that's increasingly revealing itself to be like a, a, a completely impractical and not serious posture that plays with our, it, it, it suits our kind of moral taste buds a little bit but it's increasingly and patently not able to keep up with accelerating capitalism. So that's not going to work. So what I'm, what I would argue, this is why I think patchwork is an ethical obligation, because if you're not going to manipulate people by trying to build some sort of like big, um, large centralized institution, kind of pull by manipulating their, their heartstrings, then what it remains for us to do is to, is to create our own realities basically and I think that the most ethical way to do that is to do it honestly and transparently to basically reveal this open, you know, to reveal the source code of reality and theorize that and model that and make those blueprints and share those blueprints and then get together with people that you want to get together with and, and, and literally make your own reality. So now I want to talk, I feel like that's just not, that doesn't just sound cool and fun, but it's like, you kind of have to do that or else you're going to be participating in this like really harmful, delusional, delusional charade. Um, I, I think that that's my view anyway. Um, and so now I'll just kind of finish by telling you a little bit about what I think the ideal patch looks like ethically and practically. Um, and yeah, so I've theorized this as um, what I've called, uh, I've called it many different things. I haven't really settled on a, on a convenient uh, phrase to to summarize this, this vision, but I've called uh, for now, I'll just call it, I think of it as a neo feudal techno communism, I think the ideal patch that will be both most competitive, most functional, uh, most desirable and successful as, as a functioning political unit, but also that is ethically most reflective and consistent with the, the true nature of, of, you know, human being is it's going to look something a little bit like European feudalism and it's going to be basically communist, uh, but with, you know, contemporary digital technology. So uh, let me let me unpack that for you a little, a little bit. You probably have a lot of questions. Um, one thing is that, the, you know, patchwork always sounds a little bit like intentional communities. And in the left, you know, the intentional communities kind of have a bad rap because they've never really worked uh, by intentional communities. I just mean, you know, people who want to, you know, start a little group somewhere off in the woods or whatever and like make the ideal society. And then somehow that's going to magically grow and take over or something like that. Um, it usually doesn't end well. It doesn't have a good historical track record. It usually ends up in some kind of cult or else it just fizzles out and is like unproductive or whatever. Um, but I think that the conditions now are very different. And, and I think if you want to talk about building a patch, you have to kind of explain why your model is different than all of the other intentional communities that have failed. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, one is the, obviously... You know the the digital revolution it has has been a game changer I think and all, most of the examples of failed intentional communities come from a pre digital context I mean that's one obvious point so I think the uh, the 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 search space the the solution space has not at all been exhausted that's kind of just a simple point um, but another th- thing that I've thought a lot about and have written some about is that a lot of the earlier uh, you know, intentional communities, one of the reasons that they fail is because of self-selection. And that's just a fancy social science term for, you know, there's a certain type of person who historically has chosen to do intentional communities. And they tend to have certain traits. And I think for many reasons, when you, that has caused, I won't, I don't want to spend too much time getting into it, but it's not hard to imagine why that causes problems, right? So if, if all the people are, really good at certain things, but really bad at other things, you have these really kind of personality, you have very lopsided communities in terms of personality traits and tendencies. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons why things have led to failure. So what's new now, I think is that because the pressure towards patchwork is increasingly going to be forced through things like climate change and, and technological shocks of all different kinds, economic shocks of all different kinds, because these are fairly random kind of systemic exogenous shocks what that means is it's going to be forcing a more, a greater diversity of people into looking for patches or, or maybe even needing patches. And I think that that is actually valuable for, for us uh, who want to, you know, make new worlds and make better worlds because it's, it actually is nature kind of imposing greater diversity on the types of people that we'll have to actually make, make different patches. Um. So, so yeah. So what exactly does neo feudal techno communism look like? Basically, it will have it would have a producer elite and this is why you know this is where a lot of like my left-wing friends start rolling their eyes because it basically is kind of like an aristocracy like look there's going to be a small number of people who are exceptionally skilled at things like engineering and who can do things that most other people can't you need at least a few people like that to engineer really sophisticated systems and so those systems I have in mind this is something that Casey said before I think Casey's the name if I recall correctly that the mayor should be sysadmin it's kind of a similar idea that I, that I'm talking about you'd have a small number of of elite engineer types and basically they can do all of the programming for the system that I'm about to describe in just a minute but they also do what they also do is they make money in the larger techno commercium. so like they would run a small business basically that would that would cha- trade with other patches and it would make money in, in probably very automated ways so you know it, it would be it would be a sleek agile kind of little uh corporation of producer elites at the top of this, um, you know, feudal pyramid of, of a, of a patchwork of a patch society. Um, and but then there, there would be a diversity of individuals, including many poor, unskilled, you know, disabled people who uh, don't have to do anything, basically. And or, you know, they can do little, little, you know, jobs around around the patch or whatever to help out. And so the first thing you might be thinking, and this is what this is the ma- the first objection I get from people is, you know, why would the rich, why would these like highly productive, potentially rich, you know, computer programmers want to uh, support, you know, this, this patch of of poor and unskilled people who don't do anything isn't the whole problem today, Justin, that, you know, the rich don't want to pay for these things, and they will just exit and evade. And well, my kind of novel idea here is that, um, there is one thing that the rich today cannot get their hands on, no matter where they look. And I submit that it's a highly desirable, highly valuable human resource that most people really, really, really want. And that is genuine respect and admiration and deep social belonging. So, you know, most of the rich today, they, you know, they they know that people have a lot of resentment towards them. They they, they don't like I presumably they don't like the psychological experience of like being on the run from national governments and putting their money in like Swiss bank accounts. Like they probably don't like feeling like criminals who everyone uh, more or less kind of uh, resents and wants to wants to get the money of or whatever. Um, so my hypothesis here is that if we could engineer a, syst- a, a, a little social system in which they actually felt valued and, and desired and, and admired, and actually received some respect for their, you know, skills and talents that they do have and the work that they do put in. I would argue that if you could guarantee that, that they would get that respect and the poor would not try to take everything from them. If you could guarantee those things, then the communist patch would actually be preferable to current this to the current status quo for the rich people in particular. Um, my argument is that this would be uh, preferable. It would be a voluntary uh, preferable choice for the rich because of this kind of unique, uh, new achievement that the poor and, and and normal people won't hate them and will actually admire them for what they deserve to be admired for. So then the question becomes, well, how do you guarantee that that's going to happen? Um, well, um, this is where technology comes in because I think that what you can do is um, the poor and less able people can make commitments nowadays using new technology they can make commitments to a certain type of good, a certain set of, let's call them good behaviors or whatever. Um, and then we can basically enforce that through trustless de- decentralized systems, namely, of course, blockchain. So what I'm imagining is if you can imagine something like the Internet of Things, um, you know, all of these kinds of uh, home devices that we see more and more nowadays that have sensors built in and can mon- can passively and easily monitor all types of uh, of measures in the environment You imagine connecting that up to blockchain and specifically smart contracts so that basically um, the the patch is being constantly measured, like your behavior in the patch is being constantly measured. You might have like skin conductance measures on your your wrist. You might have, there might be audio um, speakers recording everyone's voice at all times. Um, I know that sounds a little authoritarian, but stick with me, stick with me. Um, Basically by deep, deep, monitoring of everything using internet of things you can, what we can do is basically we can as a group agree on what is a fair measure of, you know, a satisfactory level of honesty, for instance. And so, um, let's say the rich people say like, I'll give you I'll guarantee you a dignified life and give you X amount of money each month. You don't have to do anything for it. As long as you respect me, you know, you don't tell lies about me. You don't, uh, plot to take all of my money or whatever. Um, and you would have like, you know, Alexa or whatever would be like constantly recording what everyone says that would be hooked up to like a smart contract. And so like, if you, if you tell some lie about how like the the producer aristocrat, he, he totally, he punched me the other day. He was a real in noble asshole. Um, and that's actually not true. Well, that all of the speech that people are saying would be constantly compared to some database of truth. Like it could be like Wikipedia or whatever. Um, and every single statement would have some sort of like probability of being true or false or something like that, that could all be automated that through internet of things, feeding this information to, to the internet basically, and checking it for truth or falsehood. And then you have some sort of model that says like, you know, if a uh, statement has a probability of being false, that is higher than, you know, maybe set it really high to be careful, right? Like uh, higher than 95%. So only lies that can be really strongly confirmed through, you know, internet fact checking in an automated way, those are going to get, you know, those are going to get reported basically to, to the, to the community as a whole. And if you have X amount of bad behaviors, then you don't, you lose your entitlement to your aristocrat producers um, uh, noblesse oblige the old kind of, uh, you know, feudal term for basically aristocratic communism, the generosity of nobles. Um, So that's all like, uh, a very kind of skittish uh, little sketch of how Internet of Things and smart contracts could be used to kind of create this idea of a Rousseauian general will. Because what I would argue is that the reason why this has never worked in history is because of lying. Basically, people can always defect. People can always um, uh, manipulate and say they're going to do one thing, but then not deliver it. The, you know, and and that's on the the side of the rich and also on the side of the poor. Um, but it's at least in sight now the possibility that we could. Um, Basically, define very rigorously what the ideal expectations of everyone in the community is. What those ideal expectations are, I should say, and Mm -hmm. program that in transparent smart contracts. Hook those up to sensors that are doing all of the work for us in the background, and in this way, basically automate um, like radically guaranteed egalitarian uh, communist system in which people do have different abilities. But everyone has an absolutely, you know, dignified lifestyle guaranteed for them, as long as they're not like total assholes who break the rules of the group. Um, and as I said, I think if you could actually engineer this in a way that rich people would find it prefer- preferable to how they're currently living. So to me, that's actually a viable way of of building communism uh, that hasn't really been tried before. And. I think it, it, it really suits a kind of uh, patchwork model. I think that this would be something like this would be the absolutely ideal uh, patch and not just in a productive, successful way. Like this is the ideal way to make a large group of people maximally productive and happy and feel connected and integrated. Like everyone has a place and everyone, everyone belongs. Even if you know there's a little bit of difference in aptitude, the, the system, the culture will reflect that, but in a dignified and fair and reasonable uh, kind way mutually supportive way. And yeah, I think, and I, so yeah, I think that that would be most productive and I think it would also be, I think that's the most ethically desirable way to organize the society. And I think it's now becoming available to us. That's my, that's my pitch. <laughs> I think I, I I could say more, but I feel like I, I haven't been keeping time. I feel like I've been talking enough. I could, ex- I could go off on any of those points a little bit more, but I'm happy to kind of uh to wrap it up there. I would, I would even point out more specifically, I found out recently that a uh, uh, hat tip to my friend, the JMO who might be in the chat right now, actually the town of Tombsboro, Georgia is right now for sale uh, for only 1.7 million. I think that's a pretty good deal. It comes with like a, it's a whole town. It comes with like a railroad, a railroad station. It comes with like a sugar factory, all kinds of stuff. And you know, you could easily get, you could easily build a little prototype patch that I just described of diverse people and uh, go in on a mortgage for buying a whole town in, in, in Georgia. And that's like not, you know, 1.7 million. If you have a bunch of people and it's a major, you know, publicized project, it wouldn't be that hard to raise enough for a mortgage on a 1.7 million property, especially if you have like a compelling white paper along the lines that I just sketched. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet, but uh, that's, that's that's what I'm thinking about. And that's that's my model or my vision of of the communist patch. So I'm going to cut myself off there. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.